This is The Drive with Josh Graham podcast. Tune into The Drive weekday afternoons 3 to 7 on Sports Hub Triad. Russell Henley is out in front. Day one of the Wyndham Championship. He birdied three of his final four holes today to take an eight under 62 to the clubhouse. Who is Russell Henley? Well, he's a 32-year-old Georgian who hasn't won a PGA Tour event in four years, but obviously out to an early lead. We'll continue to keep you posted on the tournament throughout today's show. We heard from Coach K for the first time since his retirement press conference in June. Of course, it's its final ride, and to me, he sounded confident all the issues from last year's tire fire have been worked out of the program. I believe him, because in order to put out fires, you need to first acknowledge there were flames in the first place, and obviously there were. That's why Duke missed the tournament for the first time in a quarter century last season. So, when Coach K was asked what excites him about this year's team, his final team at Duke, I think he identified where the problems were last year. Listen. Our guys are stronger. They really like one another. Uh, they say they like me. Hopefully, I, uh, I, that's true. And uh, uh, and I, we're going to be a bigger team. You know, and, and that doesn't say much because we were very, we were not a very physical team last year. Uh, and I, I think we can be very, a, a, a physical team and a more mature team. Listen to that answer. A few of the things that he said they like each other, they like me, they're stronger, they're tougher, they're more mature, they're more experienced. Coach K is spelling out all the shortfalls they had a year ago. I couldn't help but hear what he said and think about Jalen Johnson, who bailed on Duke when his minutes went down after the state game in February. Duke immediately got better after Jalen Johnson left. So, Kay has to believe the relationships are better and that the chemistry is better. In terms of toughness, behind Mark Williams, it was Henry Coleman and... Patrick Tape, who was the grad transfer from Columbia, neither really panned out. Scouting reports said that both those players were pretty soft, and neither player's on the roster anymore. Replaced by Theo John from Marquette, and some of the guys we'll get to in a second. So Duke believes that they're tougher, stronger, more matured, experienced. They've, they like each other better, all of which appeared to be problems last year. And I think Coach K confirmed it with that answer. The biggest reason why I believe in Duke this year is because the Blue Devils are going to go back to the recipe for success that they've enjoyed pretty much this entire one-and-done era. And that's dominating through the post. Last year, we pointed this out before the season began, that last year's Duke team was kind of an anomaly in the one-and-done era, in that they were a finesse team. Matthew Hurt was their leading scorer, and he played in the post, but he wasn't this dominant interior force. And they were guard-centric. It was Wendell Moore and Jeremy Roach and DJ Stewart 
they weren't a team really pounding it into the paint until late in the year when Mark Williams was doing so. And at that point, it was pretty obviously too late for Duke. Last year was different. The previous three years, consider this. You had Vernon Carey, all ACC talent, player of the year discussion, if not for Trey Jones winning the award. Previous year, it was Zion Williamson, maybe the greatest interior force we've seen in college basketball this decade. The year before that, Marvin Bagley and Wendell Carter. We go back further, the year they won the national championship. Jaleel Okafor was the best player on the team in the post. During the one-and-done era, Duke's at its best when it's dominating through the post. And when you look at the roster this year, that's what Duke's getting back to. Mark Williams is coming back. Paolo Boncaro, he might be preseason All-American as a top three player according to the 24-7 rankings this past season. A one-and-done player if I've ever seen one. All I hear are great things about Boncaro. I anticipate a really strong regular season for Duke. How strong? Probably the best one we've seen in a decade. It's kind of an amazing stat that's pretty obviously linked to one and done and how long these teams take to develop. But despite all the success Duke enjoys and the level of consistency that Coach K's had, 25 consecutive years of making the tournament, didn't make it, of course, last year, it's kind of amazing that they haven't won an ACC regular season title since 2010. It's been longer than a decade now. I think part of that is the development of players, that the teams aren't old enough to really come out of the gate strong and then by season's end have the best record in the ACC. But I also think part of it is priorities, if I'm being honest. That Coach K isn't really sweating it and bringing too much urgency to the regular season when his goal is to win at the end of March, early April. That's what he's going to be defined by. We've even had that criticism for Coach K in the ACC tournament. This year is going to be different. The team is experienced, as K talked about. This is his final ride. So every game is going to carry some level of urgency. The talent's there, the urgency's there. When that happens, that's the team I pick to win conference titles or championships in other sports. I'm picking Duke to win the ACC next year. Now that the dust is settled with the one-time transfer and who's going pro and all this, we're now at the point where teams are reporting to campus. Practice isn't going to begin for another month and a half or so, but I'm buying Duke. Right now, Duke's my pick to win the ACC this next year in Coach K's final ride, snapping this drought of 10 years of not winning an ACC regular season title. The start of the Wyndham Championships, usually a pretty good indicator. We're getting really close to college football season. Three weeks away, Robert. When you look at the calendar, three weeks exactly from the day, the Thursday night games of week one. And I really can't stress this enough, how meaningful some of these games are. Like There are a few that stand out just in ACC circles where it might be the best regular season opening weekend we've ever seen. Like, Let's start, and if you want your thoughts heard on the show, 336-777-1600 is the phone number. We're on Twitter at WSJS Sports. Robert Walsh being the producer of this show. Let's start with the game in Charlotte. That is three weeks from the night. ECU facing Appalachian State. 
let's look at it from both sides of the spectrum. If Appalachian State loses the game, I struggle to believe Sean Clark's going to win 10 games this year. Since jumping to FBS, this is kind of amazing, App State has not had back-to-back seasons where they didn't get the 20 or get to 10 wins in a year. Kind of an amazing streak that they're on here. Last year they won 9. Can they get to 10 this season? That's a big question with App State. Expectations are always high in Boone. If App loses to ECU, I think it crushes that dream of a 10-win season, considering how good the league is this year. Louisiana ranked in the top 25, and App has to go to the Raging Cajuns' house. Going to Troy is never an easy task. Coastal Carolina is also ranked in the preseason coaches' poll. App has them in Boone. And... Let's not push too far to conference play. After playing ECU, they go to Miami and they have a home game against Marshall. None of that's easy. If App State's going to finish the year 10-2, and they can't lose the opener to East Carolina. So that's meaningful. It's probably more meaningful for ECU, though. I'm not just saying that because me and Robert went to East Carolina. The last time the Pirates went to a bowl game... Lincoln Riley was their offensive coordinator in 2014. As crazy as that might sound. If ECU loses to App, I'd venture to say it's going to be real tough for Mike Houston to get the six wins. Because like App, they have a pretty tough schedule. (laughs) There are some teams ranked in the top 25 that that, ECU is going to go up against. Cincinnati's ranked in the top 10. ECU has no idea what to do with Navy on an annual basis. And the Pirates have to go to Annapolis. I've seen that movie play out a million times. And in non-conference play, after playing the Mountaineers, their first home game is against Shane Beamer in South Carolina. And they have to go to Huntington and face Marshall. It's difficult. So that game is meaningful for both sides. Yes, Robert? So what you're saying is basically, even if they beat App, they're probably not going to make it to a bowl game. No, no, no. I think they make I mean, a bowl if they, game. If, if they, they lose beat to App. Marshall, I mean, are they going to make it to a bowl game? If they no. lose to South Carolina, are they going to make it to a bowl game? If they win against App State, they are very well set up to pace themselves to six. If they lose the game, I'm really concerned about it. So that's what's at stake for that game there. The next night, Friday night, North Carolina plays at Virginia Tech. As soon as the ACC schedule came out, this is a game that was circled over any game on the Tar Heel schedule. I hear Tar Heel fans say, well, Notre Dame on Halloween weekend, NC State the day after Thanksgiving, what's what's a ram to a wolf, all that. No, it is all about game one in Blacksburg. These players haven't played in front of a crowd in forever, and they're going to play to open things up Right now, with full capacity, I saw that earlier today, that they're expecting full capacity in Blacksburg, inner Sandman, the entire deal in prime time. Good luck. If North Carolina wins, I don't see a roadblock for them for the first month and a half of the season. They're probably going to look at 7-0 and because the Miami game's at home and then they have a bye after that. Going into that Halloween weekend against Notre Dame, can you imagine where they might be ranked if they're 7-0, and if they start preseason top 10? It'd probably be the third 
maybe second-ranked team in the country at that point. Depending on how things fall, that might be the biggest game in college football that weekend. North Carolina playing at Notre Dame. And North Carolina might be favored. If they lose, though, all the air comes out of the balloon. If you view it from the Virginia Tech perspective, if the Hokies win, it quenches some of the pressure that's on Justin Fuente. And I don't think there's any coach in the ACC facing more pressure this year than Justin Fuente is. He's got to win. And if he wins against a top 10 team to open up, maybe Hokie fans might slow their roll when talking about Fuente being fired for sure. So that's Thursday and Friday of week one. Saturday, you might have the biggest game of September. Georgia and Clemson, two preseason top five teams meeting in Charlotte. And this might be a red hot take, but I believe this. If Clemson wins against Georgia game one, they're a lot to make the playoff. I believe that. I think this team, because they lose Lawrence and ETN, and there's some shifting and moving around, some transition on this roster, that they're probably going to lose an ACC game. One of them. One dumb game they're going to slip up. That's what happens with 21, 22-year-olds. Weird things can happen, and it always did with Clemson before Trevor Lawrence arrived. So... I don't think they're going to lose two. I think they'll lose one, but not two. And if they don't lose two and they beat Georgia, there's no doubt they're a playoff team. So that's really big on the line. Game one, if Clemson beats Georgia, they're a playoff team, period, for the seventh straight year. They're going to be the ACC champs. If they lose game one, I'd venture to say Clemson probably doesn't make the playoff because if they slip up at any point the rest of that year, well, then that's it. There hasn't been a two-loss team make the playoff, and an ACC team's not going to be the first, considering how this committee has viewed the ACC largely over the last five years. So that's what's at stake. Clemson hasn't lost a season opener since losing to Georgia in 2014. That's also the last time that they lost multiple ACC games. Georgia hasn't lost an opener since losing to Clemson in 2013, so something has to give. Obviously, that's a massive game. All three of these are massive games. App State ECU on Thursday, North Carolina, Virginia Tech on Friday, Georgia, Clemson on Saturday, and Charlotte. Major consequences for week one games in college football. We're three weeks away from it. Microphone. Check, check. All right, ready? Here we go again. This is The Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. Locally, the biggest thing happening is the Wyndham Championship at Sedgefield. But nationally speaking, there's no question that all eyes will be on the field of dreams tonight as the Yankees play the White Sox in a cornfield in Iowa, adjacent to where they actually shot the movie. It's the first big league game played in the state of Iowa. There's already video of Kevin Costner out there on the field having a catch. So I felt today is as good of any day to list off my top 10 favorite baseball movies. This is what I believe to be the 10 greatest baseball movies. I was going to do five, but that was too tough. Baseball movies, to me, Robert, I think are the best sports movies. I think it's just something about the sport 
that lends itself to better storytelling. So I've got a feeling some of you will take issue with the list, but let's get it started with number 10. Bad News Bears. Only movie on this list that got a remake. And I thought it was a pretty good remake, too. When you consider the job Billy Bob Thornton did. Number nine. The Battered Bastards of Baseball. This is an unbelievable baseball documentary. If you haven't seen it, I think it's still on Netflix. I'm not going to include Ken Burns Baseball as a nominee when that is like 10 hours long. But I am going to include the Battered Bastards of Baseball talking about the creation of an independent league team. A former actor helped put it together. It might have been Bing Crosby. I don't know that for 100% certainty, but really good documentary. Clinton Yates recommended it to me, saying it'll make you love baseball more. It'll make you nostalgic. It's an unbelievable story, and it checks all those boxes. Number eight. Little Big League. This is the part that might, this might start to get controversial here. I think Little Big League's a better movie than Rookie of the Year and Angels in the Outfield. If we're talking about those kids' movies, those three from the 90s, Rookie of the Year, Little Big League, and Angels in the Outfield, I'm taking Little Big League, where he became a manager or a general manager running the Twins. I thought that one was a lot more fun. Number seven, The Natural. I freaking love Robert Redford. Robert, you love actors from the 70s. Are you a Redford guy watching all the presidents, men, and many of the other many of the others that he either acted in or starred in? There have been a lot of actors the last 20 years that have been compared to Redford, but I don't think any of them have come close to his level of influence. I'm a Redford guy, and The Natural, you have the great ending. It's also, I don't know if it's peak Wilford Brimley. That's probably the firm, but Wilford Brimley looks like a baseball manager, the perfect guy to be cast in the role of that old-time baseball manager. You a Redford guy? Uh, I don't bend over backwards to see him. I think I've seen like uh, the... Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or whatever, but I think that's about it. That's a very good choice. Number six. Major League. Probably not the best story. I don't know if it's the sixth best story, but too many iconic characters that are still relevant in the culture today for it not to be somewhere on this list. Wild Thing Rick Vaughn. And you talk about Serrano and his cursed bat. You talk about... Willie Mays Hayes. So many things are still relevant to the culture that this just simply has to be included. I forget if the first one was shot in Baltimore, if that was the second one, but Major League, that is the sixth best baseball movie to me. Number five. A League of Their Own. There's no crying in baseball! It's such a well-told story, but what elevates it is it's a well-told true story. Sometimes 
you have a great story that gets over-dramatized to the point where it's no longer a great movie. It kind of becomes cringeworthy. That's what you get with 42, for example. Jackie Robinson, my favorite sports story in America, but maybe my least favorite movie, 42, just because of the way they had to over-dramatize the damn thing. That's what happens when Disney gets involved with things at times. A League of Their Own was a story taken care of by tremendous storytellers, and you also had terrific actors, too. Tom Hanks, chief among them. It's a top-five baseball movie. Number four. Sandlot. Gotta be, Robert. When you think Sandlot, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Uh, Probably uh, Squint's making out with that... Uh... With lifeguard the, as with she tries the to give him CPR. Uh huh. Things that we still reference today. Kids, I bet, still go to the pool and make references to that. You know, there's the really pretty lifeguard. I know one way to bring her down here. Then you also have the beast talking about making s'mores. The Great Bambino. So many great lines from this movie. that, And it still really holds up. Watched it a few months ago. Number three. Field of Dreams. Unbelievable story of how it got made, Robert. Sometimes you gotta take away these legendary movies, strip the, the history we've had with some of these movies, and think about them conceptually. Robert, this movie was pitched to a dozen studio execs and all of them hated it at first. Think about what it is. You got this guy who's hearing voices in Iowa telling him to make a field, and then he's going, he's seeking out this this former writer or this this writer that you know, is is famous and for the reason to try and figure out who Moonlight Graham is. Like it, if you just look at it conceptually. At that time, it's kind of understandable why people would not buy this movie. But when Kevin Costner signed on, at that time, everybody got on board at that point. It was originally supposed to be called Shoeless Joe. They didn't like the title because many people in America at that point in the late 80s did not know who Shoeless Joe Jackson was. They thought it might have been about some homeless guy who was missing a shoe. So they decided, we're going to call it Field of Dreams they're going to set it in Iowa, and tonight they're going to be playing in that cornfield. What an unbelievable story. And it's about fathers and sons. It's about baseball. It's about America. It's about second chances. It humanized Shoeless Joe. Un- unbelievable movie. It's still very, very good. Number two. Moneyball. I think it's the best sports movie that's been put out in the last 20 years. I really buy that. It's Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill throwing their fastball. Philip Seymour Hoffman, one of the best character actors ever, playing Art Howe. And the movie ages so well because it's talking about something that has changed baseball more than anything we've seen in the last 50 years, probably. Analytics and how they've been worked into the sport. It's a wonderful movie. It's the number two baseball movie ever to me. Number one. Gotta be Bull Durham. Robert still hasn't seen Bull Durham. How many of these movies have you seen? 
out of the ten I just listed? Uh, I've seen four, and I've seen the remake for Bad News Bears. Okay. Bull Durham, it's, I'm not just saying it because we're in North Carolina, it's Kevin Costner at his best, it's, you know, Susan Sarandon just throwing 105. The only flaw with it is Tim Robbins clearly doesn't know how to throw a baseball, and they have to edit around that. But, A++ sports movie. In fact, today, the Durham Bulls Twitter account sent this out. Bull Durham, better than Field of Dreams. Well done. What do you think of the list? On Twitter at WSJS Sports, 336-777-1600 being the phone number. Another headline for baseball today. Chris Davis has called it a career in Baltimore. I've spelled out my fandom pretty clearly to you guys. I'm honest about it. I don't hide my allegiances. Don't really have a college sports one. I went to East Carolina, so I'd like to see them do well. I know many people from Wake, ECU, NC State, Duke, North Carolina, you name it. All across the state, I have relationships built there. But in terms of being a fan, the two allegiances that I have are the Baltimore Orioles and the Carolina Hurricanes. Those are the two teams that I root for, and I will admit it. And I'm conflicted on this one. Chris Davis, he retires, and he's been perfectly awful the last few years and absorbing a lot of money. But it's tough for me to be mad at the guy because when he was given a massive contract, he deserved that extension. Nobody questioned it. He broke the Orioles' single-season home run record. And at that point, he was a part of a really good team. The Orioles were just a few years removed from being in the ALCS. That's the only time this century I had any hope that the Orioles could go to the World Series. So after that season, he got paid. They chose to pay him over Nelson Cruz. And then he fell off. Many in the media thought it could have been a modern-day Bobby Bonilla situation. But Chris Davis turned away $60 million on his final year of his contract and said, nope, I'm done. And he's done a lot of charitable stuff, too. That's been well-documented. I'm not mad at him. I can't be because, you know, this is an organization that never pays players. The most dreadful place to be as a sports fan is to be rooting for a team with a bad owner or a cheap owner because you can get rid of the coach, you can get rid of the players, the owner's going to stay. And that's always going to be a problem for you. The ownership never paid anybody. So the fact that they paid him does not tell me that if they didn't, they would have allocated it to somebody else, maybe even to Nelly Cruz. No, it just told me that, eh, they liked him enough to pay him. And now that he wasn't great and didn't play up to the contract, they might think twice before they pay another player, which means the Orioles are probably going to be mediocre for the next decade. Wonderful. We're exactly three weeks away from week one of the college football season. And there are three games in week one that I think carry massive consequences with them. And I'll tell you which three I'm talking about next on The Drive. A regular little chatterbox. Already talking a mile a minute. You're on The Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. One of the things I think 
that makes a Coach K press conference compelling. And it was a similar way with Roy Williams. No canned answers from those two. You kind of knew they were going to tell you what they thought, and they built enough equity in the sport that they're in to be honest. So at times, Coach K might spout off about something. He might take things in a different direction. He might start grilling you or questioning you. You you don't quite know what direction it's going to go in. I've certainly faced that a few times the last few years covering Coach K, as has our next guest, Brenda Marks, who joins us from The Athletic. Before we get to Brendan, Brendan was just interested in figuring out what Coach K's been up to this summer, and Coach K let Brendan know. I've just been reading articles from The Athletic and grading them the whole the whole time. And I, do you want to know what place I put you in? Or? Hopefully, hopefully a generous one. <laughs> I'll, I'll wait till the end of the, till the end of the summer to put my final grades in. Okay. Brendan, you've got uh, some competition with your colleagues, Seth Davis, Dana O'Neill, Brian Hamilton, among others. Where do you think you rank? You know, I, I would like to think high on the list, Josh. Uh, I will say, however, Coach K has been an early athletic subscriber, so he's been on the bandwagon actually longer than I've even been with the company. So uh, I appreciate him reading. I, I, knowing that he is reading, uh, it, it doesn't influence anything, but of course it's good to know. And uh, I don't stack up to Seth or, or Dana or Brian or anyone else, so I'm sure their grades are much, much higher than mine, as they should be. There, there was a comment K said yesterday. See, you know you had issues if you didn't make the NCAA tournament for the first time in 26 or whatever years. When Coach K was talking about uh, why he's excited about this next team, he made sure to point out, and he said this a few times in the 25-minute presser, that this next team's going to be tougher, and they like each other, and they like me, and they're more mature, which seemed to be some of the problems they might have had last year. I think immediately about Jalen Johnson and that entire episode when minutes were docked from him in the NC State game and given to somebody else, that was seen to be the last straw before he decided to go pro. And the lack of toughness behind a guy like Mark Williams, you have players who left to go somewhere else after this season ended. So, Kay, it seemed like to me, and I'm interested in your read on it, Seems that the problems, seems to think that the problems that Duke had last year are now fixed. Do you believe them? I, I definitely think that some of the problems are fixed. I don't, I don't know that we know or can know until the season actually starts if they're all fixed, but the makeup of this team is just so much different than last year. I mean, you think about it last year, and, and Duke came into the season really relying on Jordan Goldwire, who, who was sort of you know a rotational backcourt piece. They were relying on him to be the veteran leader on the team. And, and you know Joey Baker, who to that point had only played sparingly. Wendell Moore and Matthew Hurt, who were both in and out of the lineup as freshmen. There just really wasn't any leadership. There wasn't really any experience base. And then the freshmen who were coming in, while talented – also didn't have the summer to get to know each other uh, in terms of like physical makeup. You know, you mentioned Mark Williams. He's a guy who obviously has great length, but really needed to add some strength. I, I don't need to tell anyone that DJ Stewart uh, at the next level, he's going to have to continue bulking up. So 
Yeah, I completely buy him when he says that this is going to be a bigger, more physical, tougher team because you just look at the guys that they have. You know, uh, Paolo Bantero, he is a unit. Uh, AJ Griffin is is a wing, and he's six foot eight, two twenty five. Even Trevor Keels, who's the the backcourt piece that they brought in, you know, he's about six five, two fifteen, two twenty. So he's a bigger guard. So. I do believe that respect, but the thing that I'm still interested to see is how the pieces all fit together, Josh, because that, to me, was the greater problem last season. Guys never seem to figure out their true roles, and and balancing that, to me, is going to be the real question of whether Duke gets back to the tournament and just how far they go this season. Brendan Marks covers Duke and Carolina for the Athletic. We'll get the Carolina football in a second. Now that the dust has settled this summer with all the movement, the one-time transfer, uh, etc. Is Duke your early favorite to win the ACC? Absolutely. Um, although I will say, Josh, that I am I'm pleasantly surprised uh, at what Hubert Davis was able to do in his first offseason with the team. I, I really thought that Duke was, you know, sort of far and away going to be the favorite when you look at the talent they had. The They don't have a ton of depth, but the top-end talent on that roster is just insane. And uh, Hubert Davis certainly made a little bit of a closer call for me with some of the transfers North Carolina brought in. But, yes, I, I still have Duke as the team to beat. I just think when you look at their individual talent and the way the pieces come together, I mean, uh, again, I know people haven't seen him play yet, but remember the name Paolo Bencaro. I mean, when the season starts, he is a guy who Duke is going to use in a Zion-like role. And I'm not saying he's going to be Zion. That's an unfair expectation. But he's going to be featured in that same capacity. And you look at some of the other guys they have, uh, you know, they have NBA written all over them. So, yeah, I, I still think that just in terms of sheer talent, Duke is a team to beat. Um, we'll see how, again, how the pieces come together. But North Carolina has made that question a lot closer than it would have been if you'd asked me in, say, you know, early April. Let's go to Chapel Hill. North Carolina ranked ninth in the preseason coaches poll. Too high, too low, or right on the mark, Brendan? My, my colleague Ari Wasserman uh, wrote a column when the coaches poll came out, and he, he said that North Carolina was too high at number nine. His reasoning was basically, yes, Sam Howell is back, and he's probably the best quarterback in the nation this year. Yes, you're talking about an offensive line that returns every single starter, a, a defense that is as stocked on the depth chart as it has been under Mac Brown. But still, there's a lot of projecting to do with this group. So, you know, I, I kind of think that number nine is just about right. I think top 15 was really what you were looking for. I wouldn't have been surprised to see UNC a few spots lower than it came in, just because there are still a number of unknowns with this team. You know, we talk about the skill position guys, and everyone knows they've got to replace runners and receivers. But I, I still think there's some questions on the defense, too. You know, there's all these pieces on the D-line. How does the rotation shake out? Can the secondary stay healthy? That's another big question mark for me. So, I probably would have gone a little bit lower than nine, maybe in the top 15 instead, but uh, certainly it's something that's going to be put to the test early, and UNC hopes that it goes even higher than nine. When we get to preseason camp, maybe when we get to Operation Basketball in Charlotte, assuming there is an Operation Basketball in Charlotte, we'll have to figure out what Coach K's athletic list looks like. There's no doubt that you're on the top of the list for us, and uh, we appreciate you spending the time as always, Brendan. We'll chat sometime soon. Yep, thanks for having me, Josh. Appreciate it. Of course. You. Yeah, he's on Twitter at Brendan R. Marks. Read his stuff in The Athletic. Moving things along. The Panthers. See, there's a lot going on today. You got the Wyndham Championship, of course. Among some of the big names who are in Greensboro, had pretty good rounds. Adam Scott shot four under par in the morning. 
Really good round, but he was kind of all over the place. Same thing for Harold Varner the third, but he was at three under. Um, Matt Kuchar was just really steady. Really steady, four under par as well. Everybody chasing Russell Henley over there in Sedgefield. Robert Walsh, the Carolina Panthers, scrimmaging with the Indianapolis Colts this week. Preseason game number one is on Sunday at 1 o'clock. A couple of joint practices today and tomorrow. But that's not the thing I want to ask you about Panthers-related. No. I want to talk to you about some of the new food items that are going to be available at Bank of America Stadium this year. Josh Klein, our friend from the Riot Report, he went to an event at Bank of America Stadium where they showed off some of the new items you can expect to see this year at concession stands. Let's start. Let's go one by one. The Frito Chili Pie Dog. You're talking about a beef frank, classic hot dog chili, Frito corn chips, shredded cheddar cheese, hot dog bun. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know how out of the box it is, but I mean, it's it's a good looking hot dog. I'd definitely get one. Then you got the brisket Reuben. Do you like Rubens in general? This one here has it's smoked brisket, barbecue aioli, Swiss cheese, rye bread, coleslaw. See, that's where you lose me. It's not really a Reuben if you don't have the coleslaw, or I mean the uh, sauerkraut. Yeah. I mean, that's probably a little too sweet for me. Uh, especially the rye bread plays really well with the uh, sauerkraut. So, I mean, I and I like coleslaw. I don't have any issues with coleslaw. I would probably prefer the sauerkraut, but I would still eat it. Yeah, I'd still give it a shot. Next up, fried green tomato caprice. Fresh mozzarella, fried green tomatoes, whole grain mustard aioli, basil, balsamic glaze, blistered tomatoes. I don't want to get all Italian on him, but it's a caprese. You ever had caprese salad? It's just basil, mozzarella, and tomatoes. Well, I've learned I've mispronounced this all my life. It's uh, basically their play on caprese salad, but they fried the tomato. Uh, I would definitely be about this. My mom makes this with the tomatoes out of her garden and the basil out of her garden. I love caprese salads. I would definitely eat this. Old Bay shrimp roll. It's a lobster roll with shrimp. Yep, you don't even have to say anything else. Yep, I'm in. (laughs) And lastly, bourbon onion grilled cheese, parmesan crusted butter toasted bread, bourbon caramelized onions, some cheese, I don't know what kind, French onion dip, and some thyme. It's a gruyere. It's how you say that cheese. cheese. But uh, okay. I'm out on that. It looks like a bunch of bread. Like it, it just looks like they're like, hey, you want something that sounds good? But it's a lot of bread. No, I'm not good on that. But you're not mentioning the, the reason I sent you this to you initially. Hot Cheeto sushi. Oh, like, I forgot about the hot Cheeto sushi. Who in the hell? In their well, right mind was let's like... Let's go to a football game. Get I like, some hot Cheeto sushi. You know what? Like, even if you're in a box... Some of these are in, like, the luxury boxes. Some of them are on different levels where it's not just the... Uh, like, the you walk up and order the a burger course. Yeah. But, I, like, if I was in a luxury box, sure, I might eat sushi. But who is like, yeah, I like sushi, but you know what would make it a lot better? 
if you added hot Cheeto dust to it, this that sounds would really like something set it off. that you would do in the 80s when everybody was high on cocaine. Just like, give me, give me some sushi and what are we going to put on it? We're going to put some Cheetos on it. And not just any tea Cheetos, we're going to put flaming hot Cheetos on it. I, I think you're right, but wrong drug. Like, I think somebody was high as hell and was just like, man, what do we have? We got some... We got some like gas station sheet sushi, and I put some <laughs> flaming hot Cheetos on top. It was great. Uh, the Old Bay shrimp roll might be the best of the bunch. You're kind of right about the brisket Reuben, but then again, I'm not a big sauerkraut guy. That's why I'm not a big Reuben guy. Aren't so, you also not a big coleslaw guy, though? That's a good point. I think it's between the Frito chili pie dog and. The old bay shrimp roll, but I'm also, I'm also kind of high on grilled cheeses. There's a place in downtown Winston that does a killer grilled cheese that has like the bacon and the fried onion. That's really good. Maybe throw some jalapenos in there, or Sarah Bradford calls them jalapenos. That's those are the big three for me. Is it as simple for you? Is there one that just stands out among the rest? Yeah, the fried green tomatoes with the caprese was really good. And oh. I would eat, I don't know, man. If I'm going to get one of those lobster rolls, I know they're going to charge me $18 for that. They better fill it full. That picture looks like they were just like, and a little bit, and one for you, and one for you. They know one for nothing. You better fill that thing slap full if I'm going to pay $18 for a shrimp on a lobster roll. I just put the thread that our guy Josh Klein put up on his Twitter page, on mine. So find my page. You can find that thread from my buddy Josh Klein. Didn't even talk about the Field of Dreams game tonight. Keeping an eye on some former members of the Dash. Eloy Jimenez just watched him a few weeks ago in Winston on a rehab assignment. He's he's going to be in the lineup tonight. I remember watching Andrew Vaughn in Winston. Who else? Obviously... I don't think Luis Roberts in the lineup. I think Luis Robert might be a bit banged up. But a number of players came from Winston-Salem. Zach Collins, we'll see if he's behind the plate. Yeah, he's weird. Yeah, I get it. The Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. We're honored to bring Winston-Salem State here and the program that they have. And I think that's October 30th or, you know, the last Saturday. It's a Saturday game here in Cameron Indoor Stadium, so it'll be a cool thing. Yes, it will be. That's Coach K yesterday talking about the exhibition right before the start of his final season. Winston-Salem State and Coach Cleo Hill Jr. going to be taking his team to Cameron Indoor Stadium. Coach K also in that answer gave a lot of love to Clarence Big House Gaines, who he was very close to when uh, Big House was still with us. To talk about that and also what's going on at Sedgefield, which is currently in a weather delay, John Dell joins us from the golf course from the Winston-Salem Journal. I know you asked K that question and you're working on that story, uh, how these two programs are going to be linked before the start of the season You've also talked to Cleo Hill about this. How excited uh, is the uh, is his club at Winston Salem State about it? Well, Josh, uh, this game was supposed to be played last year, but you know, COVID came. Uh, Coach K usually schedules the defending CIAA champions in an exhibition game. He's done that 
you know, previously six or seven times. So this game was supposed to be last year, and he decided to, you know, Coach K to put it on the schedule this year, and I think that's, that kind of shows you a lot about kind of the what he thinks of Winston-Salem State. I know he, you, you talked about it. I mean, the Rams are fired up about this game because they get to play at Cameron Indoor Stadium. I mean, you know, and, and it's Coach K's last year. It's going to be even, you know, extra special. I just think it's it's kind of a cool thing when a Division two gets to, you know, kind of go over and play a, you know, top-flight Division one school, and it's, it's just going to be like going to Disneyland for those guys. What's the word on when things might get started back up at Sedgefield? Well, it's not raining here. It's just cloudy and there's thunder. Um, thunder and lightning, no rain. Uh, the wind is is kind of calmed down, so I guess we're in a waiting period. But we've got 72 players still on the course uh, out of the 156, so we've got a ways to go. But uh, I, I'm thinking I, hear, I heard or maybe in the 615, 630 range is when they think this thing might blow blow through. But this is what happens when you have a tournament in North Carolina. So we uh, we just roll with it, and uh, hopefully they'll play a little faster once they resume play. Follow him on Twitter at John Dell WSJ. Follow his coverage, of course, in the pages of the Journal and the News and Record. What's been the highlight to you on day one? Uh, highlight was walking back, walking by Hideki Matsuyama as he's getting ready to tee off. And he looked at my Duke Mayo hat that I'm wearing that Wake Forest played in the in the bowl in Charlotte. And he looked up and he goes, hey, nice hat. So that's kind of been the highlight for me. They like the Duke's Mayo hat. But, um, no, I, I just think seeing the fans out here, Josh, I mean, they were – it was weird last year covering this thing in November in August last year. And it was – there was nobody around. It was like a member guest. And now just seeing fans out here and enjoying the day and just – People, you know, having an early lunch and, you know, drinking the cocktails over in Margaritaville, I, that, that's been the coolest thing for me so far, just seeing people enjoy themselves again. In what way does this tournament feel most different from the before times, before the pandemic, say 2019 and earlier? I just think people maybe, you know, they, they appreciate it a little more. I think even the golfers might even appreciate it more because, you know, it was all kind of taken away from everybody. And, you know, you, you kind of get used to I mean, this is my, I think, 28th, 29th year I've covered this thing. I mean, I, I've covered this thing before the Internet. And so it's it's just kind of cool that it's back, and I think people missed it. And I think it's uh, something that uh, you, you better not take for granted because, it, it, you know, it, can, it could go away at any time. But, like, you know, you've talked with Mark and stuff. They're in good shape here, and I just think it's, you know, it's it's a good place on the schedule, and I just think it's something that needs to continue to be viable, and, you know, we can't take it for granted, I don't think. John Dell with us from the Winston-Salem Journal, with us here on WSJS Sports. Okay, the J.R. Smith stuff is making national headlines. The fact that he's trying not only to enroll at A&T, but since he didn't play collegiate sports... He was once committed to North Carolina, never played for Roy Williams. He's thinking he has eligibility. He thinks he has an opportunity to play collegiate golf, and maybe with some of the changes and some of the amateurism rules, the fact that he's made money as a pro in basketball perhaps might not be a disqualifier for him to play golf. What are you hearing on the A&T side of this? Uh, the idea of J.R. Smith competing for A&T golf? Well, I think what it does, I think 
in the first place is just bring some positive expo- exposure to North Carolina A&T. I mean, you know, it, it's not an easy school to get in, and they've accepted him. So they've obviously done their research on his transcripts in high school and things like that. And so I think that's kind of the positive thing. Now the NCAA is going to have to, you know, clear him to play. But I think it's a, I think it's a positive. I mean, he's a five handicap, a good player. I mean, I don't know how good the A&T men's team is, but I, I think it's going to bring some positive, you know, positive vibes to a and T. I I mean, here's a guy that, you know, he doesn't have to do this, but, you know, he wants to go back to school and maybe set an example. I think he has five children. So, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a win-win and, you know, hopefully the NCAA sees it that way, but he has been accepted. He is enrolled. And so I think the next step is, you know, kind of in the NCAA's hands, which, you know, that's, that's always not a good thing, but we'll see what happens. Who do you like to win this tournament in Sedgefield? Is it Webb? I'm on the Webb Simpson train. I mean, he just—it's like pitch and putt to him out here. He—he's hit every fairway and know where to, he knows where to hit it on the greens. I mean, I just think it—if he can get past today's weather round and have a good round, he has an advantage because he tees off early in the morning tomorrow. So that's when the scoring is going to be even better. Is the guys that tee off tomorrow, and he's kind of in that wave where if he's, you know, on the leaderboard here, which he probably will be when the when the day's over. And he's got an even, you know, better advantage tomorrow because he gets to tee off early. Because there was only three or four guys in the afternoon wave that made a run, you know, at, at Henley. So I think Webb's got an advantage if he can, you know, get through this uh, weather here uh, later tonight. Dell, you stay safe and uh, good luck to you. I know it's going to be a very busy weekend as it always is at uh, Sedgefield for you. Thanks for squeezing us in to your busy week. Sounds good. You guys have a good rest of the week. Thanks a lot. There you go. That's John Dell from the Winston-Salem Journal joining us.